0: happy december and welcome back to our first december episode of commonwealth ground we've switched up our decor a little bit got our uh, you know fresh <laughs> balsam candle burning to mm-hmm. set us into the holiday spirit and if you guys are watching us on youtube which by the way we are on youtube as well as spotify and apple Podcasts as well as anything that plugs into an rss feed but that's where you can find us there um if you are tuning in for the first time my name is victoria churchill and this is jackie gary we are the co-hosts of commonwealth ground we are uh kind of creating a bipartisan environment to talk about public policy current events Um, so if that's your thing hopefully you stick around join us today we have a very fun episode we're going to be recapping news of the week we are going to be discussing what legislate what the legislature will be up to and what legislation we can expect going forward and yeah we're excited to cover all that with you guys today So thank you guys so much for tuning in, and hopefully we'll try to keep this to an hour, even though we have a very exciting episode, but that's kind of what we're trying to promise y'all so that you guys can listen to this, get some kind of recap and preview of everything that we care about, and hopefully that you'll care about too. So without further ado, um, let's say, so session is next month with this being December, session starts January. Session starts January 10th.
1: January 10th, yep. And
0: Jackie, if you guys missed our first couple of episodes, Jackie is a Chief of Staff in the Virginia House of Delegates. I'm a journalist uh, publishing in Right of Center Publications, um, both in Virginia and beyond. So uh, I will be deferring to Jackie a lot throughout this episode to kind of give us the nitty gritty background on a lot of legislative issues and just really processes. Um, because again, we think that typically people that work in the legislature and people in the media don't have these open and prolonged conversations. So that's part of the reason why we created this platform as well. So, without further ado, Jackie, do you just want to give us a legislative 101 kind of what you've really been up to the past couple of weeks? Um, what does preparing for session look like as a legislative staffer in Virginia? Uh, You know, I've tracked legislation across a bunch of different states, uh, across the federal government, so Virginia, I think, is definitely unique in a lot of ways, but I think you can speak to those a little bit better than I can.
1: Yeah, so thanks, Victoria. Um, I'm glad to report for anybody who's been worried about me that I have, in fact, uh, survived this past week, which was a very big deadline for us in the Virginia legislature. Um, So, uh, basically, most of your bills are going to be filed through what we call the pre-file period and that is um, bills that are allowed to be introduced before the session starts. And so we had a really big deadline um, on November 30th at 5 p.m. We uh, have a great, um, amazing team of attorneys that actually draft all of the legislation for us um, in in the House of Delegates and in the Senate. And so we had a deadline to request drafts that can be filed in the pre-file period. Um, The House and Senate have a bit different rules. The Senate, uh, I I don't know the exact number, but I think it's like thirty something. They have a limit on the number of drafts they can request. But the House, uh, the chamber that I work in, uh, at least in our uh, longer years, the year the session immediately following an election, um, uh, unlimited number of pre-file bills. And so um, it's a time where you kind of they don't have to be perfect, but you have to have kind of an idea of what you want to work on and which what you want the bill will look like you have to send that request in. So um, I'm sure there have, I don't know the exact numbers, they don't release reports to us like that, Um, but there have been thousands of draft requests coming from the newly elected 140 members of the General Assembly coming in for draft requests. And these drafting attorneys, bless their souls, have like 30 days to return these drafts back to us um, so that we can review them with our stakeholders, make sure that the language is the way we want them, or request edits if we've had some things change. And so um, that's kind of where it starts. And so it was a really big week. I a lot of our friends um, from Sorensen, who also work in the legislature and we're busy doing this um, and trying to find patrons for their bills and um, on the lobbyist end and then on my end, we have all these requests come in and we kind of have to figure out, you know, what do we think we want to work on? Do we think something's a good idea that we don't have capacity for because you, um, but maybe somebody else wants to because, you can request something be drafted and then send it to another member through our system and stuff and so it's it's a lot it's a lot of work Um, but it's fun so this is kind of really when I get started
0: awesome well with that you mentioned stakeholders so I want to say you and I outside of our full-time job we are actually stakeholders on a piece of legislation together believe it or not look this is perfect example of bipartisanship working together so if you guys missed our very first episode kind of the, the genesis for this podcast came out of the Sorensen uh, Emerging Leaders Program, which Jackie and I both partook in through the end of the summer and the beginning of this past fall. So what we did as part of that program was we actually had to come up with a policy proposal that was bipartisan in nature. Uh, the class had 24 members, so we had three groups, came up with three potential pieces of policy. Um, Jackie and I were in the same group, uh, and so this class that we were in, we had a pretty strict 50-50 partisan balance. So that means that every single policy group also had that partisan balance. Um, so basically in our group, it was eight of us, obviously 24 divided by three group. So there's eight of us individuals, and then it was four Republicans, four Democrats, uh, or you know, left-leaning versus right-leaning individuals. Some people don't necessarily identify with the party, but they definitely at least leaned one way or the other.
1: Liberal or conservative. Liberal yeah. or
0: conservative. So we came up with something that Jackie is going to dive into. I'm going to give her quite a bit of time to do it because <laughs> I'm honestly still learning every single day that I talk about it and that we work on this. Um, but our bill, kind of the the 101 rundown of it, is we came up with the idea that um, education funding in Virginia needs reforms. Uh, there is kind of some things that, the legislature at the state level is supposed to do that it is currently not doing. Um, And so we came up with kind of an an immediate fix to remedy some very important problems that we see across the Commonwealth, um, that again, people from really the entire political spectrum came together and saying, this is the best way to address this specific problem right now and make the best immediate impact on the largest number of people. So that was kind of the, The framework that we created this piece of legislation, um, well, I guess, the the policy project, which has now been generated into a piece of legislation that Jackie and a couple of our other members uh, of our policy group have been working on with members of the legislature. Um, And so those things are uh, kind of important to keep in the background because these um, projects were kind of created in uh, academic exercise. That was kind of a disclaimer that we had as we were working on it, but obviously Um, We put in lots of hours, lots of late nights talking to each other at 9, 10 o'clock at night um, because everybody that was at least in our group, I don't know if it was different in some of our other groups in our cohort, but um, we were all pretty passionate about making sure that this actually went outside of the confines of Sorensen and that it actually solved a problem that we currently see in the Commonwealth. Um, And then kind of one other kind of caveat before Jackie digs into exactly what the proposal is, is that we like we only met together um, three times for three full weekends so there was about 12 days not even that I think nine days of in-person work that happened plus in between the sessions Um, so really this policy proposal was written in the span of eight weeks so again we wanted to have something that was a small change that would make a big impact so that was exactly why we chose to try and attempt to tackle the problem in the way that we did. So without further ado, Jackie Gary, legislative (laughs) extraordinaire, um, (laughs) please tell people how education funding in Virginia currently works, um, what an SOQ is, because I personally had to learn this in August and September, and uh, yeah, just take it away, please. Yeah,
1: so uh, Virginia funds its public schools uh, through what's known as the standard of quality or SAQs. And basically, um, it is a deeply complex formula that says, um, based on this, you know, students need this many staff or schools need this much staff to run a successful public school. And based on all of these other methods of criteria, you plug these numbers into this formula and it spits out this number that says this is how much money it should take to operate each individual school system throughout Virginia, each public school system. And so uh, what happened back in, I want to say June or July, um, uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with J. Lark, but in case they're not, the Joint Legislative Audit and Review Commission, which is kind of this nonpartisan or bipartisan um study commission um it's kind of highly regarded in Virginia as like the top most accurate like these reports are well researched um they are very nonpartisan, and it's just supposed to give like a snapshot of really what's going on in Virginia
0: raw data what the impact is um for people that are more familiar with the federal side this is kind of like CBO congressional budget office. Right. right. Um, So again, if anybody is kind of coming from that perspective, that's basically Virginia's parallel of this. Right.
1: And so JLARC came out with this report on the SOQ funding formula back earlier in the summer. And they said, although Virginia has been meeting this obligation, they have been fully, according to this formula, fully funding the schools by giving every dollar that this formula says our school should need, which in this case is about 10.6 billion, I think it was, I'm not sure on the, yes, statewide, not per system. Um, uh, I'm not sure on that point, but regardless, Um, you know, so we're giving all of our school systems that $10.6 billion, but what the schools are actually spending on it, it comes to more about 17.1 billion. So we are actually underfunding our school systems on what it actually takes to operate them by about 6.1 billion dollars um which is really drastic right like i mean
0: it's it's 30 percent that's lacking
1: right and and then we're putting this and and, you know it's not that I mean, this money is coming, right? Like, this, our schools are getting this money, but I think the you, money
0: is being spent. It is not coming, which is right. What we right, right.
1: Right. Right. Yes. And, but it is, but the rest of that, that 6.1 billion is now being pushed onto our actual localities and the local government systems, which is why you start to see disparities um, that I think we're all kind of familiar with between areas like Northern Virginia versus like South side, you have these uh, school systems, which are more capable of meeting that burden, although as uh, representing a NOVA jurisdiction, I will argue that like, this is still a big stress on, on localities like Fairfax. Um, you know, it, it, it's still a big lift, but you know, we're having, we're seeing much different outcomes. And, um, you know, kind of what we're seeing, what our group, I think, saw based on that report is like, this leads to huge disparities and basically the quality of education that you receive dependent on your zip code or, or where you live in Virginia, um, which I think, um, I, know, I know we made a lot of jokes in our group about using the word equity, because <laughs> um, uh, I know I know your side of the aisle, isn't a huge fan of those words, but um, putting all of the connotations of like what that word means politically aside, like we're not seeing equitable outcomes for our kids. And that's going to lead to like poorer life outcomes, right? And so um, based off of this report, so one of the other things JLORG does is they don't just spit out like all of the statements say, here is a huge problem. Um, you know, good luck. They do provide recommendations for actually how to fix this. Um, so there were about 20 kind of short and long-term recommendations. And I think kind of what the overall message of the report was was that like, we just needed a a complete formula overhaul. Um, Our formula depends on staffing ratios um, instead of a student focused model and what the cost of actually educating an individual student is. And so I think the report kind of like recommends like just like a model shift. Cause I will say we are also in Virginia with the staffing model. We're in the minority of states in the country that fund education in this way um most states have a, a student focused model and so that that was kind of the overall recommendation like victoria said we were kind of um we were working on this for like eight days in person and then like we had like eight about eight weeks or so um you know kind of to do zoom and in little group meetups so we didn't really think we were capable of fixing the whole thing
0: in this project and for the confines of this project that was again kind of the restrictions that i guess were put on us a little bit artificially but i also think it helped focus our efforts and again yeah as i said in the beginning the smallest changes that would have the most impact. So, in the end, we came up with.
1: Yeah, so in the end, we came up with uh, basically including uh, central office positions in the SOQ formula. So, right when we see staffing ratios right now, um, kind of make up this formula, it really just includes like teachers and teachers' aides, um, special needs teachers, stuff like that. Well, all incredibly important jobs, but it doesn't account for the salaries of other people who we really need to make schools function well, your janitors, your school bus drivers, um, uh, cafeteria, cafeteria is, yeah' like people like those. Um, so it doesn't include them and it doesn't include their cost of living adjustments. And so, um, when you get up to areas like here in Northern Virginia, um, and you know, it, it, there's the same cost of living, which I think we can talk about in a future, uh, future episode but um you know it doesn't include uh cost of living adjustments and so we're seeing I mean, it's not the only reason that's contributing but like I know this year a big problem has been um regardless of where you are in Virginia the lack of school bus drivers right mm-hmm. um and like they just don't have enough school buses to get kids to school on time and so um I I don't think we've no I think there actually is a locality I think in central that has i think it was spotsylvania has had to get to move to like 40 weeks Mm -hmm. um, because uh they don't have enough um faculty to be able to to cover all five days a week and to be able to do this so you're leading to problems like that and so um our policy solution would include them and the cost of living adjustments um so that they are paid for by the state and not by the localities um it would also remove um any cap on adjustments related to inflation so you know salaries haven't and and other things haven't been keeping up with the rate of inflation and so it would do that Um, and then kind of the bigger things to address this would be the bigger pieces of this would be integrating a program called the at-risk add-on to the funding program so what the at-risk add-on program is is it's um it is a voluntary program but almost every locality participates in it every single year um, and you collect data on the uh, number of at-risk kids and at-risk being defined as um, people who are within or about to hit the um, poverty line and, and, and be included in poverty measures and as well as um, uh, like social programs uh, such as like um, TANF, uh, SNAP evt things like that and so that would make the funding for those things mandatory versus optional so that would they would it's an
0: automatic opt-in for every locality to report those numbers so our bill
1: would would require it wouldn't be an opt-in it would be now mandatory currently it's currently a voluntary program Mm -hmm. but um it's pretty rare that a locality doesn't participate in it every year and so one of the reasons this will be helpful to the localities is because uh for like consistency measures so Mm -hmm. that they ha they know they have like assurance that they have this dedicated funding stream coming in every year versus having to apply for it not really sure if you're going to get it not sure if you're going to be able to participate in it this year um and then the last kind of piece of it would be to um change the way that we um calculate some of these at-risk numbers um, by using uh, free and reduced lunches. So back in like 2014 or 15, the federal government kind of changed the way that we collect uh, free and reduced school lunch uh, data. And the Virginia system um, hasn't updated to account for that. And so we're actually most likely in Virginia um, under collecting and under reporting students that qualify for free and reduced lunches mm-hmm. um, which affects the amount of money that we get federally that we are able as a state to distribute to localities and so by updating it to kind of match the federal programs we will be able to more accurately capture the number of students that either are part of the free or reduced lunch program or qualify for it and then that way the state is able to um, account for the funding um, that they would need because they are low risk or or, I'm sorry, high risk, um, low income areas. Um, And so kind of the outcome of this is that localities, um, we don't have a exact breakdown, but most localities or almost every single locality in uh, the Commonwealth would receive an increase in funding for the next school year to the tune of, I wanna say it was 296 million was what we uh, ended on. We had to add a few things in because just because of some reporting numbers or some localities um, that may have without doing some things like a hold harmless, which is basically uh, The state won't hold it against you and will help supplement the funding if you were to lose any. Um, and so, but the idea is that every locality in the Commonwealth will see an increase an equal or an equitable increase in funding so you're not hey, proportional a proportional yeah yeah yeah. that's the word i was looking for actually <laughs> thank you um i wasn't actually looking for
0: ad- equitable that time but it, it, i guess I'm... it is inherently equitable because it, it would is. be distributed right. at the same rate to every locality based on a subset of data exactly. that is not currently being plugged into the formula exactly so. and
1: so yeah. it's not like it's not it's not a perfect fix right like it's not addressing that it's we're not even getting i think like a full percentage or something to the point of that 6.1 billion dollars right but the i think the idea from the general assembly the sense that i get from the general assembly is that there is actually a want and need just shift the entire formula but just like politically like and just functionally i don't think that's possible within the next year yeah and so kind of like our idea is that this is kind of a stopgap measure let's do our best to get more money towards the schools in a really targeted and direct way um while we work on these big hefty overhaul Mm -hmm. um which which the general assembly will be working on that last budget um that came through Gosh, that must have been like September. It mm-hmm. was in the middle of our Sorensen program while, after we had started working on it. Um, and so...
0: We were scared. We were scared.
1: <laughs> um, but there, there was money in that budget to create a work group to kind of s- study all of
0: these. Uh, basically, all the inefficiencies actually that we found, which was quite... Yeah. Which really, after the initial, uh-oh, what does this mean? Does this mean <laughs> basically everything we've been working on doesn't matter? We were actually like, actually, this means that we're on the right track. Um, which I think is very helpful to acknowledge. So thank you, Jackie, for that very detailed breakdown. Um, (laughs) I want to uh, maybe address some questions that might have come up, especially in listeners that might think more along the ways that I do. Um, Kind of some initial things that uh, were kind of red flags, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, um, that came up in my head when we were talking about this issue. So uh, basically just like a 101 yes or no, does this bill do this? Um, Again, you know, if anybody's gone and lobbied in a legislature, whether that's Congress, House of Delegates, if you're listening from other places in the country, um, right, like you walk in to present a bill to a member or a staffer, um, you know, they want to know the rundown. Does this do X? Does this do Y? Does this do Z? And how and why? So does this, is there a raw increase of dollars? Yes, there is a raw increase of dollars. So so i just want to like kind of have the the caveat the preface of like on my side of the aisle i'm very much in the school choice camp um yes this is a higher amount of raw dollars that is being spent on public education that is true however uh first of all our dollar our each dollar now thanks to inflation is worth less so you need more dollars to do the same things again um You know, I will probably blame a lot of people in DC on the other side of the aisle for that, but the problem that is created by a lot of other factors that is going on means that the raw number of dollars has to be higher, right? Like a $5 footlong does not cost $5 at (laughs) Segway anymore, guys.
1: No, like I just went to Five Below over the holidays for my family to get
0: stuff. Like it's not Five Below. Five anywhere. Below is not Five
1: Below. Like five fifty, right? Dollar okay.
0: Tree is dollar twenty five tree. Right. A five dollar foot long doesn't exist. It costs twelve dollars to go to McDonald's. Like everything is more expensive in the raw number of dollars. So, the raw number of dollars is more, but it is for everything. Yeah, that is what happens with inflation. Um, so that that's point one uh again the, the the what is happening and the why right so that is a pretty easy thing um and again if republicans if we are complaining and blaming the biden administration for inflation that is not uh that is not news to any of us um but and again... while i'd argue that i would also say that
1: we can agree like even if that were true the state can't do anything to <laughs> yeah, fix the that state right can't do that. we can't fix that at the state level so as much as, as much
0: as i as mean much. yeah there's probably everything. to a degree but yes there yeah. there's a lot of things if we are just looking in the microcosm of the commonwealth of virginia there's a lot of other things impacting that that are outside of our control so what we have to do is we have to deal with the results um and that's you know jackie and i have talked offline and we might have a on the record conversation about this just about like i mean i know i've seen it for example campaigning right like people are really mad about x y and z issue and they don't necessarily understand the roles of different levels of government and being like can you as my delegate fix my pothole and it's like probably not like maybe there's about 20 percent that we can do able to do
1: that depending potentially on, depending
0: on how much you've like, done yeah it has to be your city or your whole <laughs> pothole versus the whole road but yeah. again like this is this is just a, a very um good example of like you know is there more dollars that need to be spent on transportation yes or no yes. sure potentially <laughs> and like again living in northern virginia i would probably say yes which is again the idea of commonwealth ground like a lot of issues that we face day to day are not black and white or red and blue issues purple Um, purple. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's a lot of things that are regional divides that are generational divides that are divides of you know again rural and not rural whether you're a homeowner or a renter whether you're a parent or not a parent whether you're married or single like there's a lot of other divisions that we have that go beyond just prison trip which is why we have this podcast um but so that's kind of answering one question uh really quickly
1: like you touched on something that i want to like kind of mention that came up with a lot of our conversations and you can talk about how you think about this as well but like the idea of the regionalism aspect to it like i would also say that like these are currently this 296 million these are our these are dollars that are already being spent or just kind of shifting them from locality to the state right And, like, the idea of that, like, so that localities can better use that money on other projects, right, that are, like, local to them that, like, deal with their own issues.
0: So So, that's one of the reasons I really like it, because as conservatives, I think we always want to uh, have the government closest to us probably be the most impactful. I think that's kind of a core tenet of conservatism is local control. Um, And so this bill actually does that. Uh, Yeah. It gives... Because what is happening now is there is a problem. There are not enough dollars coming down to fix it. So in Arlington County, our property taxes go up to deal with it. Right. And so if I want to go and yell at the Arlington County board for raising my property taxes and they'll go, well, don't you care about the kids? I do. And so this is why I'm proposing this bill so that my property taxes can go down. Um, You know, I might pay more in sales tax, but my property tax hopefully will go down if Arlington County doesn't have to make up for the deficit. And, you know, we are hoping that it will be a um, a similar uh, kind of narrative will play out across the Commonwealth, because, for example, we had one member in our group. um, Hopefully he will be joining us for a future episode (laughs) teaser. We we won't drop his name right now just in case he tells us he doesn't like us anymore. Uh, (laughs) But I, I don't think he will um but uh coming down hopefully soon we will do a very uh deep dive into the data of this project because he is a numbers guy he is awesome he did that for the course of the project um but he is from a area in southwest south side virginia um and you know he talks about like so for example like salaries need to be paid right because that's kind of a little bit more dependent on like the day-to-day operations of budgeting and school districts um but if these dollars have to be allocated towards salary, that means that the fact that in his area of the state, buses have to go on bus routes that are four times as long as they are in Northern Virginia, right. the school district in White County or Wise County yeah. or somewhere down by the North Carolina border cannot make up for that deficiency. So actually, you do have to have higher taxation at a local level yeah. to cover that um now again you know i know i have some friends in the school choice movement that want to shut it all down overhaul it completely even though i might potentially fall more on that side of the argument right now there are children whose educational experience is being impacted um that are falling through the cracks i think again on our side of the aisle you know we want to beat the drum about covid right like if you want to talk about shutting down the entire public education system in my point of view that's what happened during covid um there are children that lost knowledge uh that are still struggling to gain it back um so even if you do want a complete overhaul of the system you can't just stop and go from zero like there has to be some kind of continuation some kind of phasing some kind of reforms um and then again i also want to say to my school choice crowd which i personally do fall more into maybe one day 200 years down the line there will be no public schools as we know them today but realistically like that's not going to happen in five years or 10 years um you know i I think our current education system we like to talk about was created kind of during the 1950s to like get people ready to work and go in factories and things like that so there are potentially reforms that could see a drastically different education system that we would love to see on our side of the aisle but it's not going to happen tomorrow and until those changes that we would love to see if they happen if they happen in virginia if they happen in other states uh, there will still be inefficiencies in the current system so you have to know how to address those for the people that are currently in it today um i mean i and again like i say this as somebody that went to public schools my entire life i also went to very good public schools that had lots of course opportunities and i actually i ended up moving in the middle of high school so i ended up attending both an ib school and and an ap school Mm. Um, so there is a lot of programming that I think exists within public schools. Uh, I did not go to school in Virginia. So that is where a little bit of my, um, potential lack of knowledge about what actually goes on here in the Commonwealth looks like, but I think at least in this area, I think it looks pretty similar to the kinds of high schools that I went to. Um, so I think again, even if you dislike the public education system, you feel like it's not serving students. There is still a lot of work that can be done to make, I would say, a much more personalized uh, public education experience. Um, then- that is not like, because I, I think on our side of the aisle would get bogged down on this like one size fits all, um, you know, factory robots, not personalized education approach. I think that a lot of public education systems and like even if we talk about charter schools in a lot of states those are still public schools those are still funded by tax dollars so this is again this is improving the current system this is fixing a problem that we have today um that is why even as a conservative i am okay saying we will send more dollars towards public education uh, within the confines of this proposal so that is my, I guess, defensive public education <laughs> as somebody that loves school like <laughs> that is a public school. I mean, public, you know, K through 12 went to public universities. Um, yeah. like, I think there are so many people that are, and this is again, why we have this podcast, because what I just explained there, that is not a media article. That is not a 50 second TV hit. That is a mm-hmm. real conversation about why people think the way that they do is acknowledging, again, when we talk about, like, the, the Sorensen method of thinking that we have kind of both absorbed into, it is yeah. acknowledging kind of certain things that frame the way that we think about public policy that neither side will, um, I guess, throw away, right? Like, but there is still, within having those very hardcore sets of beliefs, I think there there are still solutions if we come together across the table like we are today. Aww. Um <laughs> There is still solutions that we can come up with that make lives better, right? Yeah. Um, and so that is the point of this podcast. That is the point of Sorensen, yeah. and that is the point of our uh, legislation that life we are proposing. Government
1: really, and government, life yeah, life better, right?
0: Um, like life better for people. And again, there is a lot more cultural, philosophical changes you can talk about. Um, but you know, again, this is our current reality today: is that there are millions of students within the public school system. That are not being served and this is something that we can do to address a small part of why that is
1: yeah I from the democratic perspective i don't think i need to defend it too much but like <laughs> i'll just run through the reasons just in case um so obviously love more public school spending um you know but i also you know in in the approach that we took i think we really targeted um those who need the most help um, you know, like low income students, which for other reasons obviously also tend to be students of color, especially in our areas up here in Northern Virginia. Um, and so I, I really like that targeting. Um, obviously, I think it this uplifts everybody, but I think the people who are going to see it are the regions with kind of the lowest incomes in the area. And so we're really like in the state. And so I think, you know, doing that and uplifting those students will be really helpful and beneficial and actually
0: I want to push back on that a little bit in, in a positive way okay. um and <laughs> say that uh our group member who hopefully will join us soon um who is down yeah. from the southern part of Virginia, southwest part of virginia he said you know poe is poe uh, so yeah even though there are definitely certain communities that experience higher levels of poverty there are still quite a few people that are white that are poor um, and so this helps them as much as it does the person that is african-american or mixed race and goes to tc williams high school in alexandria it also helps the person it's
1: alexandria city public school oh, they it's, it's
0: it. renamed now yeah um it's so it's no so longer the one from <laughs> <But> remember <laughs> the titans that's that's the, like before i came the and team, lived here the
1: team name is the same it's just
0: the school okay different okay yeah. so the, the the high school still exists but yeah they, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah um before I moved to this area, that was, like, one of the few things that I knew about it. So that is why, in my mind, I think it is forever in green that way. No, it was a
1: really recent, it's a really
0: recent change. Um, um, but that's
1: where our Alexander yeah. and Dem meetings are. And you'll oh, still hear members call it members sometimes,
0: because <laughs> that's
1: where we've been meeting for forever. For forever, right.
0: Um, uh, and so even though there are higher rates of poverty within certain communities also when you get outside of you know where we're sitting today the northern virginia dc beltway yeah. um people's day-to-day reality looks a lot different than ours and like we realize that which is again why yeah. we in our group we came together to have this proposal that will not just fix public education here in nova and alexandria and arlington this is a solution for the entire commonwealth Um, and, uh, another thing that I forgot to mention in my defense of it, um, was that it, since we are using these numbers of dependence on public programs, uh, there was actually a number that we deliberated over for multiple hours, um, which is a multiplier, uh, that assumes that again, coming from my side of the aisle, um, I think for a lot of people, especially really, again, in the past three, four years. Uh, People might be qualifying, again, because it takes a higher number of dollars to meet needs, which even for somebody like a teacher, if they are not getting an inflation adjustment, right, they might be falling um, pretty far down the path towards poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think um, being on public assistance is probably looked down upon more uh, with people with my ideological bend. Um, and so I think some people would rather choose to, you know, literally work every second of their day and work five jobs mm. if that meant they didn't need to get on government assistance. but that also means that they are so poor.
1: Yeah, um
0: that there are still dollars that they are, I mean, we call them entitlement programs. but like they are dollars that these people are entitled to because of their current situation uh, that, we believe are not being reflected in the current formula as well. Yeah. Um, Which again, like this is what we want to stress is like, yes, the overall end of the day n- result is higher dollars, but it is because of a data problem, it yeah. is because of a reporting problem, and it is because of a problem with a mathematic formula. Yeah. Um, That's so. right. And again,
1: these are dollars that are yes. being spent. Mm-hmm. I think just shif- shifting the responsibility. To the state. Yeah. And And again, because this
0: leads to more local control,
1: it frees up up localities to do other things to do things that they need to do. So yeah, so that's great. So be on the lookout for that (laughs) to get that. We're working on that with um, some a senator. uh, I won't put their name out there because we haven't gotten to discuss yet. But we do have a Senate patron for our bill. We're looking for a House patron, um, and we'll keep you updated on how that progresses throughout the General Assembly this year. Um, do we want to talk about a couple other bills that ha- so we yes. have started to see our first bills be filed in Virginia. We have. Um Which I almost
0: missed as a member of the media. I am this is I guess this is probably my first really full time covering covering Virginia. a Virginia legislature yeah. in this way. Um so I've been at my current job since February of twenty twenty two. So I kind of missed Yeah, that we were year. in the middle of session at that point. Um, so. Yeah, so and then I guess this year was a little bit better um but i guess this is my first time covering it from this far back yeah um so
1: yeah so we've started to file our first bills i think our first bills were actually filed um before thanksgiving um so yeah we have i'm looking at the list now we have like eight house bills and some constitutional amendments filed we have a lot do you just people. want to do like a
0: three second uh I don't want to do what this. is well no yeah. just what is a what is a bill what is an amendment what is a resolution
1: schoolhouse rocket yes
0: like. yes <laughs> just real quick again you know if we have anybody that maybe like is a high school student or a college student sure. just wanting to learn more
1: yeah so uh the bill is your proposed um changes to the law of virginia Um, None of these will be amended yet, but once we get into the session, you'll start seeing amendments. And so if somebody noticed a word wrong or a comment in the wrong spot, and I'm not even joking about that, like if you sit, especially in the stuff that deals with the criminal code, like if there is a comment in the wrong spot, it'll change the whole bill and like they will literally fight about that Um,
0: because lawyers will interpret laws based on things like commas.
1: Exactly. Because I went
0: to journalism school and there was a lot of people that I went to journalism school with that also went on to go to law school. Oh yeah. So these are people that are trained as journalists to the level that I am, even though they might've never done it professionally, um, where you literally do things like pour over commas and semicolons for a living. Uh, And then they also did that for three more years in academic setting. And now they are in courtrooms. So yeah. So so I'm not even
1: joking when I say that. Um, So like, you know there is a word wrong or a comma wrong or um you have negotiations you know i especially i think with virginia being so kind of like closely divided as we are um you know we have divided government like there will be negotiations and you know you know i can't support the bill in this way but i could support it that way and maybe if you change it that'll signal like i'm you know that'll get this many members of my caucus to come on board and maybe the governor will sign it then right like that kind of thing so that's your amendment process and then what was the third one you want to make? um
0: uh resolutions
1: oh resolutions happy um, yeah well,
0: typically most of the time um
1: they can be <laughs> so um so the resolutions are generally are pretty generally innocuous like it's um commending resolutions so basically we say like this team um, won this
0: thing yeah it'll be an
1: opportunity for delegates and senators to recognize like great things happening in their district or um we also do memorial resolutions which honor the life of someone in their in their community who has passed away um it's also the ones that are like you know this is um we recognize this is like Oh gosh, what's I just totally blanked on all the no, months. Are totally fine? <laughs> um, like like LGBT History Month in October or African American History Month in February. You know, like those kind of months. Those are resolutions as well, and so um, that is what a resolution is. They're usually pretty innocuous. Um, you could also get resolutions establishing like studies.
0: Mm. Um, yes.
1: So like if you see something that's um,
0: and within yeah. the confines of Sorensen, this was something that we were not allowed to do as a bill was recommended, study. We actually had to come up with a solution. Yeah. So the this is important. Studies,
1: so. <laughs> um, usually those go through the rules committee and they all... Some some people are nicer about the studies than other people, but we love studies. We love giving giving the workload to somebody else and saying, like, <laughs> figure out the best way to do this and then we'll write a bill on it. Um, and so you'll, you will can get those as well. Um, so yeah, so we have eight house bills filed um and two house constitutional amendments and then we have about 16 senate bills filed i think one of the senators just like went off and filed a bunch of his stuff i think it's actually poor
0: la i'm sure (laughs) 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 oh gosh (laughs) (laughs)
1: um and then uh we have Yeah.
0: yeah (laughs) sorry senator we (laughs) love you you're a cool guy
1: (laughs) um and then i think we have three senate constitutional amendments and then about one two three four five commending and memorial senate resolutions. cool so far so So, things are popping off things are getting ready yes um there will probably be very easily like 2500 pieces of legislation filed this year. And to Virginia's credit, we hear most of them. Mm-hmm. Most of them get a hearing and go through committee. Um, not everything does. There may be about 20 to 30 things that probably won't get a hearing. Okay. But like, I don't know. I think that's a pretty good percentage of stuff. Yeah. Right? Like, um,
0: and again, I wonder, as somebody that has lived in, I guess, what, five or six states now and has yeah. tracked policy in a majority of them, at least at some point in my life or the other. Um, you know especially in states that are much more partisanly skewed uh the politics is used as a weapon in the policy making process um where the minority party often does not get to hear their bills heard yeah um and so you know again kind of we we are both proud virginians and we want to highlight some of the things that this commonwealth uh does very (laughs) well Um, And hopefully, you know, again, hopefully if there's maybe any other legislators from other states, like listening out, I know I have some friends that are legislators in other states might be tuning in. Um, You know, that is just a way that we feel like is a much better way to make public policy is to make sure that that idea gets heard.
1: Yeah, I I think so. And, And it allows for more work to get actually done, right? Like, because we have, I think we talked about this in like our first episode, but like, because we have such these short, and I'm not necessarily making a offense for the short time frames, because I, I do think they pose their own problems. But like, you know, one thing we have, you know, we have these 60s, and we have this norm that basically every, get, every thing gets heard, right? And it really does force us to get a lot of things done. Um, my boss and I go talk to like high school students. A lot of the time we'll get invites from like politics and, and like civics classes and stuff um and you know she likes to tell them one of the reasons she likes being at the state so much is you gotta have an idea in like august uh one year so like august 2023 and you could write a bill have it heard and have it become law and like go into effect by july of mm-hmm. next year. yeah less than a year yeah like that's insane and um in some ways that's in some ways that's obviously can pose a problem but like and also you do get a lot of really good legislation mm-hmm. done I and mean, you can address problems that
0: come up pretty quickly. Because there is definitely not as much political yeah. posturing as we see at the federal level, where people just like to waste time on the floor and just go off and I'm off, off and off and off for hours. Wow. Well. <laughs> I mean, again, that'll happen, that'll happen I will sometimes, say, but I will say, there's gently, a lot less of I'll that. I'll
1: gently rib my Senate colleagues. You know, <laughs> they like to posture a little bit, and you could have them go off for a bit because everyone has to say their piece on a bit. <laughs> um, you don't quite get as much of that in the House. But. The side. <laughs> um, but, but when I, we look
0: at that compared to the federal level, at the state it, level, you are forced to get your nose to I, the grindstone yeah, and when figure I say things it's out.
1: Posturing, I mean, it's like, it's like 10 minutes yeah. talking on the floor when everybody just wants to go home for the evening like and you could you know you could wrap it up and not you know use five minutes instead of 10 but not like you know you see the federal senate filibuster yeah exactly have like one senator blocking up this thing for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time right like that's just doesn't really happen in virginia um you know it gets done or it doesn't uh, <laughs> and that's basically it so.
0: pretty much that's why again coming to that commonwealth ground do we want to talk about some of these yeah um yes let's see uh so number one jackie Elliott. Well, wait has yours been introduced
1: we haven't introduced oh, okay never mind yet. we'll yeah.
0: save that for later <laughs> um well can i talk about one that i don't like i know <laughs>
1: talk I don't like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talk let's talk about it let's talk okay, about it. okay
0: okay um we maybe we'll do a full episode on this where maybe we even bring in a patron or maybe even something like that i don't know yeah. maybe we'll do something on it more deeply uh, but i am i've already written about this for the republican standard check it out um, wrote it under kind of our staff profile so it's just a quick write-up but uh mm-hmm. hr2 concerns me personally very deeply um, that is what is called a assault weapons ban however as somebody that has looked at legislation similar uh across the entire country um you know different state legislatures as well as at the federal level I think there, when you say the term assault weapon, there is a certain mental image that comes to mind, um, which this bill is a lot more restrict, I personally don't think any of these guns should be under any kind of restrictions, definitely not more than they are now, there's currently some federal restrictions that I think should probably even be lessened, but as a member of the media, I want to call out uh, many other members of the media, um, for not actually looking at the legislation Uh, i know it's hard i know that especially in small newsrooms we have to put out multiple stories a day um and i think this is something that is a parallel between reporting really anywhere that's not like a national outlet and even being a legislative staffer when you cover policy you have to be kind of a jack of all trades master of none um i want to say maybe master of few uh there's probably a pet uh, kind of area of legislation of expertise that you have whether as a journalist or as a staffer um but i i think for a lot of people especially in the mainstream media i think in the conservative media but again even i think in the conservative media there's probably a handful of people that have the properly deep knowledge of something like the second amendment um, because i think for many people writing about something that they are an expert in might even be like seen as a conflict of interest uh and so Kind of with my own work um, you know i'm very open about my background in second amendment advocacy um, working for people that have campaigned on being strong second amendment advocates and i'm probably planning to go down and testify at the legislature uh, even though i am a member of the media in my full-time job i will be going in my personal capacity um, because i am a concerned citizen and this is something that concerns me so the thing that i do not like about this bill kind of again to borrow the term red flag that gets uh taken around very much within the second amendment community is that this specifically says that anything over a 10-round magazine is a assault weapon um now this is more restrictive than even something that is in dc which you know is completely different politically than virginia um this is even more restrictive than a state like illinois which passed their assault weapons ban last year so a 10 round magazine is extremely highly restrictive because the most commonly sold firearm, which is a Glock 19, it is a handgun. You carry it for self-defense. That is where a lot of my personal background within second immunity comes from is from the self-defense perspective. Um, you know, I recognize a lot of people have a very deep tradition with hunting and sport shooting and archery as kids. Um, I did not grow up with that. I think that is a very key component of our culture and of, the movement uh, itself but that is not my area of expertise within the second amendment community i have always focused on the sec on the self-defense aspect of the second amendment um, and so i want to know what i can do legally to protect myself and this i believe completely infringes upon that because standard handguns are sold with a 15 round magazine Um, even a state like or a, a jurisdiction like dc It's 15 rounds. There's kind of some debate among people that conceal carry, uh, whether that 15 rounds means one in the chamber or whether it means you can have one in the chamber and top off your magazine. But within the magazine, you are 15 rounds. So 15 or 16 rounds is what most people carry day to day within the gun itself. Um, Now, that is important because I have been in the Second Amendment advocacy space since I was in college and in our campus carry bill that was passed in Kansas. That I advocated for and defended in my collegiate years, uh, There's actually specifically a prescription that said you cannot be carrying with one in the chamber. So you were just limited to the 15 rounds that were in the magazine. If you had to use your gun in self-defense, you first had to uh, you know, have the round come in the chamber and then you would expel all your rounds. Um, and there is also not in DC uh, a limit on the number of, ra- of magazines that somebody can have. So the total number of rounds in your possession is not capped um, so you can have as many, but within the firearm itself, it is 15, potentially, again, up to how, how you would even defend yourself in court. Like I'm not a lawyer. I look at the legislation. And I see what that means to my day to day. Um, so 15 rounds. So typically if you're carrying, you probably have a round in your, or a magazine in your gun with 15 rounds, potentially you're topping it off. Um, and you know, you probably have one or Two other magazines on your person if you really think you're maybe going to a sketchy area things um you know maybe you are going into dc and just sh- hit the fan there um but that is the restrictions that exist and again i i can go on and on and on for hours about being a gun owner in the dc area where you could potentially pass through four legal jurisdictions within the span of an hour and you have to make sure that you're compliant within all of those um that is my soapbox we can get into it probably not today uh, I but mean, I, ha- I, I have gotten into great, it, like, full episode. Like, episode. episode, yeah, Yeah, but but just looking at the piece of legislation, this is H.R. 2, uh, it was introduced by Dan Helmer in the House. So so
1: Senator Creed
0: is Senator Creed. Deeds, so yeah. um, if you have been following the Virginia legislature for a while, this is not something new from uh, Representative Helmer, this is something that he has pushed previous sessions. Um, It has not come to fruition yet, uh, which is good if you're on my side of things, um, but it's the 15, it is the 10 round magazine limit that I find really out of the realm of any kind of reality, um, which is again, this is why I do the work that I do. Jackie asked me on our last episode, if you missed it, go check it out. Uh, We are making sure that we are sending you back to past episodes (laughs) if you are just diving into the conversation now um kind of why I do what I do and it is because I think that there is a lack of education because again if you are in this space you are probably not a subject you are not a subject matter expert on everything you probably have certain levels of expertise and this is one of the issues that I'm passionate about that I write about that I speak about um that I you know testify about on yeah. the legislative level uh and you know a lot of people um especially people that I think are politically astute but are not necessarily in the political process themselves they knock on the idea of lobbyists but like this is why personally i believe lobbyists are very important because lobbyists are your subject matter experts and they will go in and say again this is the community that i represent so in this case it's gun owners so saying gun owners like if you are writing a bill like this in my personal view i don't think you've ever tried to you've uh, you probably never carried a well, gun. I'm going to push back
1: on that actually okay. really quick because Delegate Helmer is a veteran. A
0: veteran. Um, but yeah, does, does he carry a handgun for self-defense every single time? I don't
1: know. I have never asked him that. Um, and I don't know that I've ever heard him talk about it personally, but he, so, I mean, certainly. That's, that's he, has, like he has, he has had I would, some level of expertise. Yeah, like he spiraling. has, he has a, yes,
0: but I like say typically, person. I think for the general like, yeah. population, especially if you're a journalist and you're writing about this, um, like, again, I'd say probably nine times out of 10, you are not going around, you probably don't have a concealed carry permit, you are not going on sure. Guns.com and ordering a Glock 19 every month. Um, that's another restriction that exists in Virginia if you're new here, uh, is that you can only purchase one handgun per 30-day period. I didn't
1: mean more than that. That's like only 12 handguns in a month. Or in a year I again, think. we can get into
0: that more <laughs> deeply. But yeah, so that is a bill that I don't like that I am fighting yeah. every level um, as possible. So yeah, so that's my soapbox, uh, I, Jackie. Yeah, if you want would, to take it away.
1: <laughs> I mean, I would just say, like Delegate Helmer again. Like you know, I I don't know where this ten round number comes from. I haven't had a conversation with him on it. Like I don't I don't know. Um, so I can't speak to that portion necessarily. But you know. I take a look at the world and the environment that we live in and having been personally affected in a lot of different elements by gun violence and like this is so unique to America right Mm -hmm. like there are other countries in the world with high levels of gun ownership right they don't have these issues and whether it's um background checks or red flag laws or magazine you know like restrictions or stuff like we're just not seeing this high level of gun violence in other countries and something needs to be done to it And I look back at like I guess it was probably before you and I were even alive but like the federal assault weapons ban mm-hmm. like if if
0: which I personally hate by the way if you've read right. any of my right. writing right. I honestly <laughs> write, I all the time write about it's terrible and did nothing but yes push back. <laughs> because
1: like Republicans are supposed to be the party that's like Tough on crime, so how, but like the assault weapons ban expired, and we saw gun violence and like murder skyrocket by like thirty percent after that. So how can you like say that you're tough on crime, but there's nothing that we can do to curb gun violence in our communities? Like so my answer,
0: that- and again, I'm sure this will be at least one episode, if not multiple. <laughs> um, but my answer to how do we limit gun violence is we get rid of progressive prosecutors that do not properly prosecute crimes. Uh, Because typically, especially somewhere like D.C., I can point to case after case after case. If somebody commits a crime with a weapon, a lot of the time it is a stolen weapon because they are not acquiring these guns legally. Um, It is a stolen weapon. It is a illegally trafficked weapon. Uh, Personally, I believe that the blame falls on the prosecutors for not properly executing the sentence to the level that it is, because if you are... 13 or 14 year old kid living in washington dc and you commit a carjacking with a firearm and somebody gets killed this is something that has happened at least twice in washington dc within the past 18 months yeah. um, that person is not tried as an adult even though they've committed murder uh i mean that is that is a life sentence personally i'm not sure if you should be sentenced to life with you know with no parole and no limiting things to your sentence at the age of 13 but i'd
1: absolutely argue against yeah that. that's
0: what i'm saying yeah. I, the, Probably not saying you are in jail for life at the age of 13, but a lot of the times these people get zero or very minimal punishment. Maybe they go on probation for 30 yeah. days and that's their only punishment for murder. And I'm not like
1: <laughs> arguing that that's not
0: like, yeah, you're not does. saying it's not a problem, but, but also, if you're saying how do we answer it? That's my answer.
1: To, I also am going to kind of like argue and push back on the idea that like that has done nothing to stop the crime from being like, that's a, that's a reactive like that's not being proactive right you're not doing anything to stop the crime on outset and there is a lot of research that suggests that like sentence like certain sentences don't prevent crime from occurring like like take a look at the death penalty for instance there's a huge body of research that the presence of a death penalty does nothing does nothing to deter crime and i'm not saying that like there shouldn't be a, a just punishment for committing a murder, but that doesn't stop the yeah. murder from occurring in the first place, which is what something like a firearm ban, or not a firearm, I'm sorry, sorry that's so not what I mean. <laughs> no, you're fine. I was literally fine. just working, looking at the one firearm <laughs> on my
0: You're fine. I do mean an
1: assault weapons ban. Yes. Um, Like, whereas at least that's a proactive step, right? Like, that's a proactive step to trying to reduce... But to your point about the stolen, like the part of the reason that you have those instances of like stolen things or trafficked arms is because you have different, like different levels and different restrictions and different in jurisdictions. Different it's it, you're not actually seeing stuff stolen in DC. What's happening in DC is their their guns are coming from Virginia, and that's why that's why you've had like things like the like the handgun waiting period is because that that's actually like virginia was such a high like state and vehicle for trafficking arms to other states with more restrictions and so like i think the the thing there is to do something federally and like make sure it is compliant across all places so you could reduce the gun trade but like i just i just have a hard time like i there was an incident in college for me where like thankfully nothing happened but somebody was driving past the campus and they saw something that looked like a firearm being pulled out of someone's trunk and so my school went on to lockdown and I'm like sitting cowering under desks in the in the in like the lecture hall and then we were then when we found out like oh it was just a mistake and nobody had gone on campus we were supposed to go about our whole day Without as, that, if we, yeah. as if we were as if as if you know with the trauma and like every history of going through like seeing about a school shooting on the news and like all of us calling our parents and texting our parents and that saying it was all okay ones. and yeah and like i just like i'm i'm personally open to having discussions mm-hmm. on like the 10 versus 15 round things i personally think that like in that instance that maybe does sound like a bit of an arbitrary number and like personally i think we need to do something you know if we're talking about weapons you're talking about bump stocks and the ability to shoot a high capacity of rounds in a really short period of time but like i just come from it like it feels so hopeless and like scary to live in a, in a world like that and like wanting to do needing to do something to make sure that people feel safe in their communities and don't have to live with that fear of of going around with guns and so you know like i said i, I like i personally i can't speak for delegate Helmer, yeah, or yeah. like the de- this is not me talking for the democratic caucus yes. here like i'm this is your own personal views. Yeah, yes personally willing to have that discussion like what you talked about like 10 but it is just very easy 15. for
0: people on my side of the aisle to point to these yeah. are the people legislating on this that are ignoring something that is as big of a red flag to people that are
1: sure living in
0: it that that is very easy to point to as this is a complete perversion of anything and everything and anything that we hold dear uh, is really how it's seen on our side of the aisle i
1: mean i guess Um, you know like i i I do
0: want to hit on a point yeah i I do want to have a um hit a point that you and i have talked about offline but it is where uh a lot of our reasoning for being involved in politics the way that we do or pushing the kind of legislation that we feel passionate about is yeah. from uh, wanting to be safe Yeah. Um, and so that looks very different and leads to very different policy proposals and outcomes I think when that feeling is morphed through political ideology and yeah. life experiences um, but that is again I think a point that you hit very well on uh, is that that is a core reason yeah. why I mean, it's, it's why I'm going to be pushing back on it because right. to me, it, it makes me 30% less safe just, you know, just based on numbers. Right. And so that's why I'm very sure. passionate about it. Um, you know, there's again, things that you are very expert, uh, very much an expert on like human trafficking, you know, that is a want to make members of our community safer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that again, looking at Commonwealth ground, that is a very common starting point. Yeah. For us to create our policy proposals even though that leads to very different um, outcomes at the end uh, yeah. but that is a common goal that we want again we just have very different ways of going around it yeah um, cool um,
1: so i want to point out something that i yes. see on this list really quick and then we can move on uh, wrap up of
0: the week fun times i'm
1: gonna <laughs> it's not a particularly partisan one but it is super controversial so hb6 from delegate mcnamara um, provides the commonwealth shall observe eastern daylight time so east so like no daylight savings. Daylight, no you permanent daylight savings okay year round upon the enactment by congress of a law allowing states to observe eastern daylight
0: time year round so basically oh okay so it's dependent on congress making yeah it. so okay. basically it's- so it's not like it's one time in virginia and one time in maryland
1: So like, essentially, the idea would be that like, everybody has to do it at the same time. And like, theoretically, you do it in a way that like, everyone's time zones would align and like, you're not doing it.
0: Okay, so yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah, so yeah. That, like, <laughs> so I'm saying, uh, first, before, yeah. I, I have not looked at this bill um, before now, but it's I've, great that we're going to talk about a it. a lot
1: about this, actually. Like, it's a really niche topic, yeah. so it's really funny. I'm trying to remember who at the federal level... I know... Marco Rubio is big on who, it, I, yeah. But he has, like, Democratic, like, support, uh, like, support co-patrons on, on it, and so it's like... But it's, like, still super controversial, just not across party lines. Yeah. It's another regional thing, um, yeah. but I'm actually really for this. Um, so this means... So, it would mean that, like... It's like, lighter like, earlier
0: in the morning. No. No,
1: but later at night.
0: So, it's, there's more time in the morning before the sun comes up. Yeah. It's...
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, it would be, bit like, it would be, like, your summer hours all okay. year round. Okay. So, I'm super here for it. Yeah. yeah so, there's actually a lot of... There's weirdly enough a lot of research on this. Um, Like, you know, the constant jumping back and forth has, like, very terrible, like, traffic outcomes and health outcomes. My mom Um, and I
0: actually talked about this over Thanksgiving, funnily enough.
1: There's, like, more car crashes when you fall back. More ambulance requests. More ambulance requests. Um, There are poor health outcomes. Like, you actually see, I believe it's, like, the number of heart attacks actually go up in the, like, intervening days. Like, people have, like, poor health and um and so um there's a lot of different approaches to it like a lot of people would argue that we should be on standard time so where we're in right now we're in standard time right? so it's
0: earlier mornings yeah, gets yeah, yeah. darker earlier at night. yeah okay.
1: exactly um and so but i really i'm i'm kind of here for uh delegate McNamara's approach But it's also yeah. So it would
0: mean that if there's a change made at the federal level, we would be in compliance. Yeah, it would
1: basically just it would be like a trigger law. Like it would just kind of go into effect when Congress acted. Um, But But it's a very
0: different context than where we typically talk about (laughs) trigger (laughs) laws. So again, I love this exactly. because it's taking the concept out of something <laughs> exactly. that's very partisan. Something that's very controversial I, in another Yeah,
1: no, and way. so um I was I was just thinking about that. But there's a lot of controversy around it because of course, like school bus times and everything, yep. and like kids going to school, but there's also a lot of controversy like on the t- different on the different ends of specific time zones. So like the eastern ends of a time zone really like tend to like the idea of being on. Um, uh, permanent daylight savings time, whereas the Western ends actually really prefer being on standard time because even in within like this time zone. Oh my
0: God. That's so sp- I have p- not I even this talked is, about, this. This is so, about this. I really <laughs> encourage
1: you to like listen. There's like actually a lot of discourse on the internet and like, <laughs> other podcasts about this um and like so like the people in the states that are all like the western ends of time zones like
0: even so like west virginia versus virginia or like yeah tennessee versus yeah. like yeah, yeah, yeah. Virginia. virginia okay yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. because even then like the sun doesn't rise and set That's at the, the same, same time thing. within oh, the time zones
0: that is fascinating yeah
1: and so if anyone's works.
0: in the agriculture community and wants to come and talk about how that affects you please let me know i would know.
1: love to talk about this so i am actually kind of really into this bill i believe it's interesting that Delegate McNamara did it. I feel like Delegate and Freitas, is. From, he is from. He is from. Oh gosh. Whereas, I'm I'm like so bad at geography. I know it's terrible. No,
0: you're fine. Um, at least give us the district. Do you have the district?
1: His new district will be district House District 40. with all of the the redistricting numbers okay. and stuff. So and he's a returning member. Um, usually, Delegate Freitas does this bill, I think. Okay. Or a, or a bill on this. I forget how he was introduced to in the past. But I'm going to be very interested in seeing how HB six pans out because okay. um, I think this is a great idea. Um, so maybe that'll be my Rep- good thing of Re- from Republicans, Republicans this week is like shout out to Delegate McAmara for um, introducing this bill to put us on permanent eastern, eastern daylight time, time.
0: Yeah. fascinating I'm here for it okay so are we doing our like favorite Republican favorite I Democrat so. of the week I think so,
1: so all I'll right make, I'll make that my favorite Democrat of the week our favorite uh, Republican or favorite Republican of the week that's right so who's your favorite okay. Democrat okay my
0: favorite Democrat okay hold on guys I've, I've full prepared notes um I'm gonna put uh <laughs> polls with the Google Doc like <laughs> yes um, so uh this is an article from my co-worker at my full-time job American Liberty News co-worker Nancy wrote about uh Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania your home state
1: go birds he's a Steelers
0: fan but Uh, Senator John Fetterman did something that has created a lot of stir on my side of the aisle um has a lot of Republicans cheering him on for the second time in like a month uh because he shut down some Palestinian protesters the other day so um that was like number one and so we're calling this like john fetterman 2.0 we're like where did this man come from uh but so what he did on friday he called for and this is directly from nancy's article we'll have it linked down below in the show notes on friday pennsylvania senator john fetterman democrat of pennsylvania obviously uh once again called for the legislative branch's upper chamber so the senate which he serves in to expel new jersey senator bob menendez Fetterman called on his Senate colleagues to oust Menendez after Joy Behar on The View, asked him a question about the expulsion of George Santos, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. Um, And quote, this is the direct quote from Senator Fetterman. This was reposted by The Blaze, and again, people are retweeting this all over the the Twitter X-verse, whatever we want to call it nowadays. Fetterman says... i will not be calling it X. (laughs) The X, the
1: X-verse.
0: I will not be doing that. Twitter 2.0, Elon's (laughs) Twitter, whatever um he goes fetterman quote this is a direct quote to joy behar he says wearing this hoodie which again still not a fan of but this is what he said it's more important than the hoodie he says we have a colleague in the senate that's actually done a much more sinister thing so comparing him to santos saying he needs to go if you are going to expel santos how can you allow menendez to remain in the senate menendez is really a senator for egypt not new jersey so these were connected to the allegations um, nancy explains it a little bit better in the article she goes federal prosecutors for the southern district of manhattan have charged menendez with conspiracy to commit bribery conspiracy to commit honest services fraud conspiracy to commit extortion and conspiracy for a public official to act as a foreign agent menendez has denied any wrongdoing the house voted 311 to 314 to expel santos on friday after an ethics committee report found the new york republican committed serious crimes and quote blatantly stole from his campaign and quote deceived donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were in fact payments for his personal benefit. Santos is only the sixth lawmaker in the history of Congress to be expelled. Menendez has pushed against colleagues for calling calls for him to resign while fiercely defending his innocence. And he has said, quote, the government is engaged in primitive hunting by which the predator chases its prey until it's exhausted and then kills it. This tactic won't work. He said after federal prosecuted, Prosecutors added the fourth count of conspiracy to act as a foreign agent. I have done nothing wrong and once all facts are presented, I will be found innocent, he declared. The New Jersey Democrat and his wife have been charged with conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit honest fraud services, and conspiracy to commit extortion, and conspiracy for a public official to act as a foreign agent.
1: Yeah. So that is a rundown of those two for what it's worth i'm on senator fetterman's side on this um you know i i will agree like if you want to make the argument about due process i'll agree with that but like at the very minimum somebody with these level of charges against them should not be chairing the senate foreign relations, foreign relations committee, committee like, yeah at the bare minimum um like we should we should be in agreement that like you know if you if you want to equivocate not equivocate because i do actually think there is an important due process argument there um but like if you want to make that point i think like not having him chair sure, that committee and yeah. be on it um, while those are being investigated is, is totally I think it's totally fair to kick him off. And I would agree that you know, if there is a Senate inquiry a Senate ethics or the conviction, I agree that he should resign or be expelled. Um, so good yeah. on yeah. So
0: I think that this is a, a question that we are seeing come up more and more. Um, and again, journalists, I think a lot of the time are not lawyers, so we kind of have to play mock legal experts yeah. when we write about these things, which is in its own, you know, I've considered going to law school because I feel like it would make me better at my job. And then I think about how I hate school and that's probably never going to happen. Um, <laughs> but like there are definitely limits to you know again major outlets have legal analysts that are yeah. you know former federal prosecutors um you know whether you're standing on your fox your msnbc you have people that you pay to be legal experts and again kind of what i was going back to before um you know being a journalist if you do have areas of subject matter expertise it does give you a lot of credibility but there are some things that you can only learn by by doing a job uh, within the legal field, um, that I think, again, no matter how hard you try, you, you really can't learn any other way, so, kind of, again, going back to areas of expertise for a lot of journalists, you know, legality and legal procedures are, are not that, um, so, again, kind of, want to, want to maybe, now defend the profession that I was bashing, like, 45 minutes ago, (laughs) but, again, like, this is why, this is why we have this podcast, is because I think so many of these things are not black and white, um, but, no, I do want to say, like, the constitutionality argument, uh, and due process. That was actually brought up by Senator Thomas Massey, yeah, or excuse me, Representative Thomas Massey um, from Kentucky. Uh, it was the due process argument, um, and th- th- that was you know yeah. kind of the the voters of New York three made this decision, so we need to stand by them. But, you know, again, there there are a lot of things that go into the electoral process that unless you are day to day in the weeds of it, you don't really know yeah. about. Um, but
1: I mean, in the case of I also think like
0: people have been taken off committees for doing much less.
1: Like Bob Menendez, is like that is someone accused of being a foreign agent acting on behalf of another country. And if it finds out, if due process is found, like that there is like a. that that's an incorrect thing. I reinstate with an yeah. apology, but like I think that while that is being called into question, and he could potentially have access, like that's a national security yeah. issue, and that's insane to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the due process is important. And I mean, to the point about George Santos, it's like yeah, his voters did choose him, but yeah. he defrauded his voters, choosing, and, yeah. and he did have the due process. We've given Congress the power to investigate and 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 uh, subpoena evidence which they have done Mm -hmm. and you know obviously they don't have the power to institute a guilty conviction but they do have investigative powers and we have charged them with that and this is what their investigation has turned out yeah um and so i think i think he got the due process in which he was entitled to and i think congress acted appropriately i think the house acted appropriately in expelling him i really do and um you know i i would welcome that process for bob menendez as well because i don't if those accusations are true i don't think he should be there
0: yeah i think there are definitely uh different levels of punishment that you can yeah. bestow upon a public servant right. um whether that's an actual court in the court of public opinion among their peers and so i think uh, discussing the different levels of treatment that people get based on seniority track record party background um
1: yeah
0: those are you know those are kind of why things like the media exist is to get those different points of view out there mm-hmm. and you know somebody agrees or disagrees so yeah um well cool uh yeah i i'm, I'm also happy george santos is gone um i will yeah. say that uh now i will say as a member of the media i'm gonna hate not having him to write about i mean I know. this is like He's literally sad. we have been talking about how this is veep <laughs> in real life like he is uh why am i so terrible with names and titles of things um jonah, jonah. Oh, yeah. hey, yes yeah. jonah from veep
1: yeah. uh, yeah. No, I mean I, I kinda go back and forth, but like what I keep coming back to is like, you know, it's fun as he used to watch. Like, <laughs> you know, this isn't like our our institutions of government should not be about cheap entertainment, right? Like that's very true. It makes it easier for us to like tell people about what's going on, I suppose, but
0: Yeah, if they have to pay attention for most of the time not very good reasons. Yeah.
1: But um, you know, to that point it's like it does kind of distract from ability to I mean I don't know how much George Santos in particular was distracting our <laughs> our federal representative I you know I think there's other roadblocks preventing them from getting those stuff done other than George Santos but um yeah and you know at the end of the day like he was fun to watch but like at the end of the day he was a like with all the stuff you read uh like a sociopath who defrauded people of hundreds of thousands of dollars and like lied to his voters and i think that's his voters
0: his donors his voters
1: his donors i mean you know i you know he stole people's credit card information and charged dollars. yeah that's like straight
0: fraud that is undeniable that that is fraud
1: and so he should be gone and i'm glad he. if
0: it occurred because he is innocent until proven guilty Within legal saying, courts, I, yes. you know,
1: I'm not saying he should go to jail until <laughs> yeah. a court has found him guilty, but, you know. The
0: optics are not favorable the in opti- any
1: and, Yeah, that's not favorable, but, you know, it's... it's no,
0: I do want to say yeah. you talked about the idea of a distraction. Um, I, I totally agree. Uh, one thing that did not get too much coverage in the news, I think, this year, or this week, um, was the passing of Senator Day O'Connor.
1: Yeah, that was definitely overshadowed. Um, By... By this, by,
0: <laughs> by Fetterman. <laughs> well, and also
1: by the death of Henry Kissinger, for that matter. Oh, uh, yep, true, um, yeah. So we
0: have lost two great um, stalwarts, trailblazers in politics and public policy.
1: I'd push back on calling Henry Kissinger a stalwart or a trailblazer, but uh, <laughs> I guess I guess his impact on our politics and history cannot be understated. <laughs> <laughs> um, is how I'll put it. But um, yeah, I'd say it was definitely overshadowed by. Sandra Day O'Connor was definitely
0: overshadowed by those two things. Yeah. And um, And this is one thing I talk about a lot just in a lot of the commentary work that I do is that uh, people don't often study history. And I think now people are too caught up in the day to day that they don't even if they are politically intrigued, they don't know the reasons of different things existing. Um, And so I think talking about people's impact at the time of their passing is actually one way to kind of re up their achievements and accomplishments um for, for that new generation because yeah. you know i mean if you know both of these people passed in their 80s and their 90s right like they weren't in office and doing things when you and i were really alive for the majority of them
1: no, she, she, i mean she retired in what 2005 yeah so i was like 10 years so old. that
0: was like way before we started getting involved in the public policy process yeah. and you know i want to say that we probably have a higher level of understanding even i think among a lot of people that are politically astute yeah. um but yeah i think uh so your history people don't don't skip those history classes <laughs> no
1: for sure and um yeah i mean it's it's even as someone who i you know i mean she was appointed by reagan right so like even someone who i probably have like a lot of disagre- political disagreements on and ideological disagreements you know the way she comported herself and and paved the way for women to to is shown as capable of doing.
0: Yeah, I jobs. mean, like,
1: and we, you and, and I are both
0: women in politics today, and we deal with issues right. of people thinking we're someone's children, like, still like, today, just it's because we're women. Like she,
1: you know, she didn't have to prove it in some. Like, we knew that we were capable of doing this, right? But like, just proving to the general public that women were capable of doing this, and to have that legacy, and to also, you know, also at some point recognize and, and step down when she felt it was no longer her time to be in there and that there needed to be change and um you know i think there could be lessons taken from that as well definitely um you know i'm not i would have loved if she had waited a little while longer we had <laughs> appointed maybe someone else uh, to to replace her but that's my own opinion um but no but um uh but to that point i i i do think there's something um incredibly admirable about uh, admirable about that. But, you know, I mean it still shows that there's a long way to go. She was what appointed in the eighties. Yeah. So we've had we've just had what, four other women on the court? And I mean, I know that's a, an effect of, you know, the lifetime terms and everything. Yeah. Um, but I think it still shows that there is a quite know, a few ways.
0: Those are all ones currently serving now, right?
1: No, three three of them.
0: Kagan. Um, uh, Kagan, Barrett and Sotomayor. Yeah.
1: And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg. and oh, the in other, the past, yeah. yeah.
0: So, but, but to your point, these, but, yeah. these, the rest of these people are people that we know about that have served within, yeah, our, within exactly. our, you know, immediate to immediate past, um, you know, lifetime.
1: Lifetime, so, so. I mean, the fact that, you know, with the, the whole entire history of the Supreme Court, and I can literally count on one hand the number yeah. of women on that court is, um, it also just kind of shows that there's quite a bit of ways to go I think yeah. but um definitely um you know reflective on her and her uh legacy in these past couple days so yeah
0: yeah well I think that's everything we wanted to bring I to folks this so. week
1: what do we got going for next week uh we have next more... week
0: uh next week kind of a call out there if you guys again are have our lobbyist legislators um, want to come on the podcast please do this is now our third episode so mm-hmm. uh, we're really trying to tee up covering session to the best of our abilities um, so we hope to have some of you guys as listeners on soon uh i think that's probably okay. most of what i have yeah,
1: we'll see yeah we'll see wanna, we want to we want to
0: get some guests going um too so we have some systems in place set up to make that as easy as possible for people so we can um, have you on
1: remote doesn't have yep, to be in person yeah it doesn't have to
0: be in person uh so yeah help us help make this a success
1: all right well good to talk to you yes always good good to talk to you talk
0: to you again next week we'll see you guys next week bye